Welcome to the Bend ICOC podcast, where we want to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do what Jesus did. Don't forget to leave us a review and a rating, and thank you very much for listening. Today's Disciple Maker interview features Dr. Glenn Giles, who's recently written a paper, An Eschatological Perspective of Men and Women. Please click the link in the description to read the paper in full. It offers a fresh perspective on Ephesians 5, 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Timothy 2, and other passages. Thank you. Welcome back to Discipleship Interviews. And today I have the honor of interviewing Dr. Glenn Giles. He serves in our movement, our disciple-making movement. He is a founder and director and teaching professor at the Rocky Mountain School of Ministry and Theology. And he also teaches at Lincoln Christian University. So I, I certainly respect his work and recently had the pleasure of reading a paper by Dr. Glenn Giles. Glenn, Welcome to the program. Thank you for your time for this interview. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, it's a privilege to speak to you and, and all your hearers. By way of introduction, if somebody doesn't know who you are, can you tell me how you first became a disciple and what led to you becoming a teacher? Well, as we're defining disciple today, uh, which I think is more biblical, <clears throat> excuse me, discipleship would start when you started following Jesus in whatever way that might mean. And so I actually began following Jesus in 1969. So it's like 30, it's like 52 years ago. Um, I uh, wasn't actually baptized as a baptized disciple until about 1988, which is 33 years ago. So, um, but all along there, I was searching after about initially a, 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 an experience I had listening on, uh, on a television, actually, with a with a person who was preaching, uh, wow. that was really began my search and my following of Jesus. Even though I didn't know what I was doing at the time, but it wasn't until 1988 when I really understood what baptism was for and uh, was then baptized into Christ. Yeah, I think uh, all of our journeys, we find that even today, in some ways, we're still becoming disciples of Jesus. So it is an interesting question. And then I, I, I look at all of the, the scholarly articles you've published and the degrees that you've gone after. What led to you searching for that knowledge and becoming a teacher? My, uh, I think my initial desire was to try to figure out what was real. I didn't have any background. Um, we, didn't, we weren't taught. I heard the Ten Commandments once. <clears throat> when I was a kid. And so I didn't really have any background. And then I would hear this various ideas from different groups and stuff. And I figured out, you know, you got to be able to figure this out some way. It can't be just everybody's opinion. Along the different degrees, uh, not only in uh, secular university, where I did two bachelor's degrees in science, as well as one, in, one of them was pharmacy, um, I, uh, I was looking for more, trying to figure out, okay, <clears throat> excuse me, surely there's a way to understand this better. I went to a conservative restoration school, Lincoln right. Christian University, uh, and then I went to a conservative evangelical school, which is Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, to get a higher master's degree after the one at, at uh, Lincoln Christian University. But I still felt like there was something missing. I didn't feel quite like I'd found, I just feel like there's some holes there. And so I started doing a PhD program. And that was at Marquette University, which is a liberal Catholic Jesuit university, which gave me a liberal perspective. It was there that I met some disciples from Milwaukee who actually had no training and helped me to see my pride, helped me to be see what I needed to see. And so it didn't come from as much from the academic pursuit, although that was part of it, as it came from the relational aspect of meeting some disciples who, who helped me uh, to know, to experience what God wanted me to experience. And so I didn't finish my, other, my final PhD until uh, I was in an ICOC church here in, in, in Denver and uh, 
our lead minister said, why don't you go finish that? And so that's what I did. Well, thanks for sharing that. And I, I respect that it wasn't only the academics, but you were able to learn through relationship as well. And I think that's so needed when we, we teach others and learn from others. And I also respect going after conservative and liberal perspectives, being able to, to camp out in both camps and then be a Berean and fact check it with the word of God. Um, I, I know sometimes we can get a little fearful of the extremes on both sides and testing both sides. When one wants to pursue research at a deeper level beyond their, the Bible sitting on their shelf, but they find that there might be paywalls or scholarly articles that they don't have access to. But what would you recommend for that person if they're if they're on a budget and they're wanting to do deeper research? I think I think it's good to get some good commentaries by conservative people. I don't think you want to go into liberalism right away to even look at some of those. Uh, it can it can really try your faith, and if you don't have a background. In order and 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 a, and a and a good hermeneutic, a good hermeneutic to understand those things, you might be in in trouble with your faith, and so we don't want that to happen. Uh, you can go to bestcommentaries.com, and you can find uh, rated most of the conservative uh, viewpoints. Um, most of them, I believe, are most of them conservative, and you can. Uh, you can start there and look at some of the commentaries. Um, I think it'd be good just to audit some courses. Like we have all of our courses. You can audit the course and just listen to the lectures if that's all you want to do. Or some other conservative uh, uh, place, you can, you can do that. I think you have to be, you have to know what the parameters are. I mean, you're starting into a new field. And unless you can know some of the terminology, uh, know how things pro progress, how you do research, uh, you might be uh, kind of out there in the dark a little bit. Wow, thank you for sharing that website and mentioning a, auditing a class and just seeing where the different commentaries weigh in. We could end the interview right now and that would be so <laughs> valuable. <laughs> That'd be a terrific video. I, I do want to talk to you about gender roles today and that's the paper I've re read by you. I know you've taken classes by Douglas Moo and Scott McKnight, um, D.A. Carson, which are some of the big names I've heard and, and read their essays weighing in on this topic. They're, they're in the big evangelical world. So I thank you for taking those classes and for being willing to, to write the paper and put all of that work into it. Yeah, men and women in eschatological perspective. Looking at, right. I don't know what the secondary title, I don't have it right in front of me here, but it, it has to do with looking at what's called inaugurated eschatology and and what that is and how that might help us understand the roles of men and women better. What was your initial idea in wanting to help us understand it better? And what was the goal in writing the paper? In studying the scriptures, I came across... Well, I understood inaugurated eschatology, which is the, that the last times have begun, but they haven't been completed yet. And we're sort of in, a, in an overlapping of the ages between this age, this old age, and the, and the new ages to come. And I saw in the scriptures, I saw things such as in 1 Corinthians where it says, nevertheless, it, it talks about nevertheless, um, um What's to say exactly? I don't have it right in my, my tip in my tongue here, but it says, for instance, yeah. says in the Lord in verse 11 on, on 1 Corinthians 11, in the Lord, however, which is the word nevertheless in some translation, woman is not independent of man or man independent of woman. For woman uh, came from man, so also is born, a man is born of woman. Well, he just said, seems like the opposite. And then he throws this wrench into it. It seems like, seems like completely opposite. And so I thought, what's going on? And so I saw the term in the Lord. And that terminology is, is a terminology of the being in the new age. It's part of you're baptized into Christ. You, 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 you become part of Christ. It's the beginning of the new age in this world. And so I, I thought, well, there's got to be a way that we can understand why he did that or what's going on there. 
And so that was one of the one impetus I had there. And I just thought also that in looking at the different authors who have who have written about women's role, there's a few that talk about just briefly this idea of inaugurated the, uh, uh, inaugurated eschatology, but not many have really developed that. And I thought it would give a new perspective or maybe an additional perspective that would be helpful in in trying to navigate what's really going on in the New Testament with respect to a male-female gender roles. And so that's what was the impetus. Um, I didn't know for sure what I'd find, but that's part of research is you start with an idea. You think, yeah, start with a question. And then you go and try to figure out well, how does the Bible answer or does it even answer that question? Yeah, first studying out this topic, I, I never thought of eschatology and usually eschatology. I just say, oh, that's kind of an opinion issue, so I don't really have to look at it. But after reading your paper, it's hard to view these scriptures without considering that perspective. It, it seems that it's at play and can't be ignored. I, th- I think... Um... Most of the time, people think of eschatology, they think of the last day or last days way back, you know, when Jesus comes back. It's pretty well agreed now by scholars that inaugurated eschatology is a, it has a firm foundation in the New Testament. So it's not something, as you were saying, opinionated as futuristic eschatology might be. So inaugurated eschatology is pretty well f- founded among most scholars, I think, today. Right. When it's inaugurated, it's pretty essential to how we live out our Bibles. <laughs> today, I, I would encourage everyone as they're considering this to certainly read the entire paper. And I know you can find it on douglasjacobi.com. Please do read the entire paper. We're just going to scratch the surface on a, a couple of scriptures that I've been asking questions about, and that's 1 Corinthians 11 and Ephesians 5. But before we dive into either of those scriptures, what were what are some of the boundaries that you put out in your paper when we consider the already and the not yet? What would some of the extremes be that you set out from the beginning? One of the extremes is that there was a beginning of the kingdom of God through Jesus. He brought the kingdom of God, the rule of God. It's not a it's more of a uh, activity of rule than it is a place, like we lots of times think. But Jesus brought in the kingdom. The church then participates in the kingdom as, as the Holy Spirit came into us. So it's the spirit of, of the new covenant, the new age is, is, is the kingdom. So the kingdom is already here in part. The uh, new age is already here. Uh, and another I think the other extreme, the other boundary, if you want to call it that, would be looking at what happens at the end of this old age and the beginning of the next age, which is at the resurrection, as it talks about in Luke 20 and and other passages, that this age ends at the resurrection when Jesus creates a new heaven and new earth. And so there's a boundary there, at least in our particular overlapping of the ages time, there's a boundary there that that relationships are different in many ways. For instance, in first in Luke 20 and Mark 12 and Mark, Matthew 22, Jesus is asked by the Fer- the, the uh, Sadducees who don't believe in a resurrection certain questions about that resurrection, and he answers, "You don't understand the Bible. You don't understand. Uh, you don't understand the scriptures." Um, and he says, "And." In the, at the resurrection, there's neither marriage nor given in marriage. And then Luke 20 seems to show also that, yeah, it'll be different. And other places, it says we'll be like the angels. And so it looks like, and I'm pretty convinced that at the new age, there won't be marriage between men and women or any other type of marriage. Um, and that, that's another boundary. And so the things that go along with marriage today continue on until that resurrection day, when the new marriage will only be the marriage between Christ and his bride, the church. Although we participate that in that today in part, the fulfillment of it will be, will be all of us, men and women, will be brides. Now, that I've talked to people about that, and some of the guys don't like that. But... Uh, <laughs> but 
that's the merging into the next stage where we uh, become Christ's bride and, and there is really isn't any other uh, marital relationships that, that exist. It can be beautiful when you see that full picture. And that leads me to ask the question in, I think it's 1 Corinthians eleven three where he says, I, I want you to realize. And then he gets into his argument there. Can you tell me what you mean in your paper by over-realized and under-realized eschatology? Uh, under-realized eschatology is that you're in this present age. It's not fulfilled yet, but you're not even allowing in this present age the things that Jesus shows in his scriptures that should be practiced. For instance, the Gentiles uh, no longer have to be circumcised. Well, if you went back to old Judaism and you reinforced that as something in addition to what you say we're supposed to be doing for as a Christian, you would be it'd be underrealized as college. You're not you're not allowing what God has already revealed to be fully expressed uh, in this present overlapping of ages time, the now and not yet, as I call it. Then you do an underrealized eschatology. Overrealized eschatology is something like I think it was. Uh, I believe it was in, it's one place in, in the New Testament. I think it's in, in Thessalonians. But it, they, had, they had claimed that the resurrection had already happened. And, and in so doing, Paul says they had hurt people's faith and, uh, you know, it was really causing damage. And so when they thought about the resurrection already coming, it already happened, then they would do certain things that would only be completely realized in the in the next age or at least if you feel like a cultural things may not be applicable applicable at this present time but could be if the culture changes so it's 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 a it's an over realization of the of the dynamic of the uh breaking in of the kingdom through in this age the scriptures point out that both extremes under and over are in need of a correction that you can go too far on either side. Right. And one thing that, that comes up when studying gender roles is considering a, a trajectory hermeneutic. And trajectory hermeneutic, sometimes we can hear that and it can lead to, to places that seem very extreme. So we're weary of even exploring a trajectory hermeneutic. But what's the difference between uh, realizing eschatology and a trajectory hermeneutic. How do you differentiate those? Between a fully realized uh, and a trajectory, I think is what you said. Yeah, over-realizing okay, over-realized. versus taking that trajectory hermeneutic. Uh, over-realized is basically trying to practice something that hasn't been, uh, that you're not, the age hasn't come to yet. For instance, at the resurrection. Mm-hmm. Trajectory hermeneutics is if I didn't use that term that that's your term, but uh, as I understand what you're applying to my my paper is where you you approach what is to come, you grow toward that in a certain way, although you never come to it for until Jesus comes back. For instance, the idea of headship would be something that gradually morphs into being like Jesus and his headship. Until your 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 headship is 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 acting like Jesus all the way up until he comes again, and then it it's there isn't a, there there wouldn't be as much if you did it well if we did it well there wouldn't be as much difference in how he would lead as we would lead in a sense or be be heads of something, and so trajectory allows for growth. Overrealized eschatology says we got it now. And it doesn't recognize the growth in relationships, which takes time, which takes effort, which takes submission to each other, which takes all these various things that Jesus talks about. And so it's basically a shortcut. And shortcuts don't really don't really uh, uh, always uh, work out like you want them to work out. So uh, trajectory means we're, we got a goal. We're headed that way. How fast we go may be different in different people. Uh, ultimately, uh, we get to the same place because Jesus brings us to that place in the, at the resurrection. Would it be right to say, just practically for me, perhaps I'm 
perhaps I approach marriage and at first I'm acting like Jesus on the throne. And uh, as I mature, I, I, I realize and I'm humbled to be Jesus washing feet. And there is a there is imitating Christ's example, also from 1 Corinthians 11, uh, that leads me to be more Christ-like um, without taking the shortcut to say, well, I'm mature enough. There's no headship. We can uh, just approach this as if we are in those end times now. Would that be a, a way of incorrectly? I, th- I think so, it? yeah. I think jettisoning headship, as I understand in the Bible, would be uh, would not best facilitate that growth into Christ as God has set it up in this age. Um, Hmm. I mean, there are people who have jettisoned that and they go along. I'm not saying now that can't be done. I just don't think that's what the Bible points out is the best way to go nor has, is what what God has set up to go. When you pointed out in first Corinthians, Paul says, I want you to realize that, you know, God is head of Christ and man is head of woman and so forth. Um, I think what he's doing there is that he's, he's, he's assuming, yes, there's headship. And then the rest of that passage after 1 Corinthians 11, 1, is basically talking about how to apply that. So I don't think he jettisoned the whole thing, but it's more an application. Then you got the support from him also writing in, first, in Ephesians 5. It seems to be something that's there that he hasn't he hasn't jettisoned but how it's applied and the growth and i think as you grow it'll be applied different but i think that first corinthians i think you you headed it some first corinthians 11 is basically a, a, an overrealized eschatology because people are thinking that uh, i can do whatever no matter how it affects anybody else because I don't have to worry about any headship. Well, we we better go to our New Testament then and submit ourselves to some passages. Let's uh, let's touch on Ephesians five first, and then go to First Corinthians eleven to see how it applies to us. And I'll take it from Ephesians five twenty one through verse thirty. It says, "Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord." For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. One thing that comes up for me is this this nuance of submitting to one another along with headship. How, How do you approach that nuance with there being a distinct submission while also a, a mutual submission that we see in this passage. How do you see them working together? I think there's a there's submission in the sense of how you how you see authority. Jesus turned authority on its head, basically turned it upside down from what the Romans and the people of that day and even people in our day would understood it, stand it when he said you know, you're not to exercise authority like the Gentiles, for they lord it over. You know, he talked about how they lord it over their, their people. And he said, no, you, who's ever going to be greatest is going to be servant of all. And so I see submission being transformed, and it's not a, an authoritarian thing, but the submission you see in that passage, you can see Jesus submitting to us. Because he's washing us, he's making us uh, like, you know, so we're beautiful and we're sinless and we're washing us with the word. He's, you know, all these things to help us become our best. And that's what I see 
benevolent headship, if I, I use that term now, I, we haven't talked about it yet, but I see that as what benevolence is the what's best for the other person. Jesus came and died for us. He suffered for us. He lives with us today for our best. He wants the best for us. And in the Roman days, probably most of the time anyway, who's ever the head of something didn't care about the other person. They was looking out for number one. And I see Jesus having having transformed that, having turned it upside down such that my responsibility to my wife in submission to her is to do whatever she needs, help her out. And so I wouldn't be submitting to her if I wouldn't uh, be listening to those needs and trying to meet those needs, whatever they may be. Uh, and and the wife then it talks about later on, you haven't read it yet, but talks about respecting her husband. I think that's a, that's a sense of, okay, yeah, he's, he he is he is my head, so I need to respect him. But she would have the same thing. She would want the best for him. So it's a mutuality, basically, of working together uh, in, in submission to what the needs of the other person is, while not rejecting the fact that if you look at headship, it seems that that's that's something God has given man to to be able to take care of his wife, to be able to do the best for his family. To not that the wife wouldn't do that, but if if whatever the case may be, they would work together to make decisions. But in the end, it's his responsibility to, uh, to, you know, to make that decision basically, but it wouldn't be an authoritarian type. It'd be a mutuality of, of working together and looking at the needs and having a heart like Jesus. I mean, that's what he did. He came down to, to, <laughs> there's no greater submission then Jesus, Philippians 2, becoming a man and and work, and living here for our benefit. And I guess that's what I would see as benevolent, you know, a, a benevolent um, headship. And I think that's what he meant to, to say when he talks about headship now. It's turned upside down from what the Romans had or even the Jews had and even what we have today. The people don't understand cruciform living. That's another term that I use. It's idea of. I'm going to sacrifice myself for someone else. I'm going to crucify myself for the better of someone else. And um, that's what I see him talking about here. And if we had, we all women, women and men had that toward one another. And that takes a lot of humility. It takes a lot of sacrifice. It takes a lot of, of surrender but I think that's that's key to what that really is talking about. Yeah, I appreciate that benevolent authority and the, the cruciform living as a way of looking at this passage and interpreting it because it is out of, out of reverence for Christ that we submit to one another. He is that ultimate example. I think you also mentioned in your paper that we, we perhaps could over-realize if we just do away with that headship altogether um, example in First Timothy two, it seems that that might be at play of what some are doing in a turning some away from the faith by rejecting it. Right, headship, and right? I think and this is just my opinion, but I think that's the headship principle as God set it up in this age. I believe is something has something to do with order and how things can progress in a good way. And I think if we submit to that in the in a good way, if we if we allow God's type of submission, is God's type of headship, I think it's going to help us all grow into Christ better um, because he's also our head and uh, we're just imitating in different ways um, what that is like. He's also our head. Early on when I was just starting to look at gender roles and a a brother was speaking with me. He said, well, if, if Christ is the head of all of us, then then what's the problem here? And, uh, and it, he seemed to, to leave out the, the passages that we do have on headship. So would that, would that brother um, perhaps need to consider he might be over-realizing his eschatology in a, in a statement of, well, if Christ is our head now, solely our head now. Yeah, I think that might be a, an example, right. in my opinion, of over-realized eschatology. I mean, there are conservatives, obviously. Mm -hmm. You mentioned uh, 
Doug, Douglas Moo and D.A. Carson, who would be complementarians, while Scott McKnight would be an egalitarian. And so you got conservatives on both sides of the fence, but f- f- where they wouldn't see there would be any any headship or a headship that's actually defined in a way that that sort of uh, dissolves uh, what I think was there in the early new in the New Testament times. Um, so you'll find both sides of the fence, but that's my understanding is that God is still have it here. There has, there is a way to, to live in a marriage as a way to live as a disciple in the church as a way to, to follow God with him being head and overlapping of the ages, but also recognizing, uh, if I can say male head, male benevolent headship in the church as well, as well as in marriage. Great way of summarizing it to say, it doesn't dissolve headship, but headship is transformed right. by Christ. I think and it gradually merges into yeah. Christ. As you go along and you perfect that, he perfects mm-hmm. it in you, you become more and more like Christ. That's how I see it happening. Well, let's turn to, to 1 Corinthians 11 here. Read these 16 verses here for us out of my NIV, starting in, in verse 2 of 1 Corinthians 11. And my heading says, uh, Uncovering the head in worship. So verse 2, I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I passed them on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved, for if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, then she should cover her head. Verse 7. A man ought ought not to cover his head, since he is the image of the glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman, but everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to, woman to pray to God with her head uncovered. Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. I hope you have your, your Bibles out to, to glance at that passage as well. And I, I tried to emphasize those key terms with the eschatology. But in this passage, there's certainly so many confusing things. Um, he, he brings up tradition and practice and what is contentious, brings, bringing up glory and disgrace and head coverings and modesty. What would you point a person to in this passage when they're wondering about Headship being theological and universal, and yet head coverings being something that's cultural. I think what I like to look at, especially if you still have your Bibles out there, is what I consider the cultural terminology that's used. He didn't. In, he talks about traditions in, in uh, verse 2, holding to the teachings or traditions. Mm-hmm. And that can be the teachings that he had. It could be it could be actual teachings from the Bible, things that are normative and things that might be not are normative, but are what you should do now. Mm. And then he says, but I want you to realize something that man is, uh, that every man, ahead of every man is Christ and the head of woman is man and the head of Christ is God. So he's, he's establishing something that seems to be right now. And then he goes into certain things that seem to, in my mind, seem to indicate that they're cultural. For instance, in verse 4, he talks about how every man who prays and prophesies with his head head covered dishonors his head. I think we get caught up 
in the idea of what is that covering? What is that? Is that a veil? Is what? Is it long hair? There's all kinds of debates all over the place. I don't think we see what is exemplified here in what is called the honor-shame aspect of that culture. And if you want to study that out, look up honor-shame and go, go in, in Jesus' day and take a look at that. But it says it dishonors his head. Okay. And then he says, every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. There's your dishonor. There's some type of honor, dishonor, honor-shame there. It's just as though her head were shaved. Well, to us today, what in the world does that mean? Did, were you on cancer? Did you have cancer drugs? Is that, what, what's going on, you know? Uh, well, in that day, it meant something. What that is, people debate too. If a woman does not cover her head, she should have her head, her hair cut off. But notice that it says, if, and if, in verse 6, it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut, shaved off, then uh, she, should, she should cover her head. I think that if is very telling. That it's sort of given us a leeway. So, well, it, it's not that case in my day. So this didn't apply to me. Well, yeah, that's true because it was a cultural thing. A man, in verse 7, uh, ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. Okay. If for for uh, man did not come from woman, but woman from man. And neither were you was man created for woman or woman from for man, for this reason, and because of the angels, the woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. Well, that's debatable too in scholar debates. What does that mean? What's it mean uh, about angels there? What's going on? And I can see a mixture of some of the things here how the woman is the glory of God, man, and God's the uh, man's the glory of God. I don't know that that's totally cultural. Uh, but you have to look at that and see. Then he says, in the Lord. Well, he's throwing a whole new wrench into the situation. But then if you go down to, to verse four, 13, it says, judge for yourselves. You guys be the judge. Look at it yourselves. What do you think? Uh, is it proper, okay, for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Well, today, no. It's okay. I don't see any proper properness or impropriety in that. But evidently, in that day there was, because he said, judge for yourselves. It should be obvious to you guys. What's up with that? Now, either our cultures have changed so much that we're we're so we're blind to this, or it was a cultural principle that doesn't necessarily apply to every every age and every every place you live in on earth. Is it proper for a woman to pray with her head uncovered? A question. Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? How would we answer that today? I mean, we may not have short hair, but I don't think we look at guys with longer hair as, a, as, a, as shameful. We did in the 60s. When I was in the 60s, 1960s, that was looked over a shameful thing. Of course, everybody in those days had butchers almost. They were just cut off, you know, for the men. So I don't think that propriety or properness here or nature of things or things that are considered disgraceful are, are necessarily, they can be certain things in the Bible, disgraceful if you commit adultery and things like that. But I'm saying this seems to be talking about hair coverings, hair and and coverings and things like that, but he's appealing to nature, he's appealing to disgrace, he's been appealing to be even being contentious about it. He's, he's appealing to, uh, to judging yourselves. And so if we judge ourselves, if we look at it and say, no, that's not the case, then that almost has to be, in my mind, uh, cultural. Otherwise, how am I supposed to judge? How am I supposed to make a decision if in my situation, uh, and some say it's some may say it's disgraceful, and others wouldn't. Well, it's sort of in, in in my mind, unless my mind is totally perverted from <laughs> not understanding the scriptures, uh, and 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 disgracefulness is is I don't understand that. Then I think this is more of a cultural thing, and so that's where I came down. It says we have no other practice, no other churches of God. It looks like there's a practice in that day and age, 
that was considered honorable and not shameful. It was, it would be almost, they could look at the nature of things in that day and they would understand it as such. They could judge for themselves. Yeah, this is out of order or this isn't out of order. If you go to different, different, uh, different parts of the world, different cultures, you may not see that. And that's why I think it's more of a cultural thing. I'm tracking you. There's the, the honor, shame culture of their time. And the, there's an offense there that is over-realizing their eschatology, it, infringing something about the headship, bringing shame and dishonor to it and is improper. So for us, we have to consider our culture today, how we're being transformed by Christ and do those same things, judge for ourselves, bring us dishonor. Do they, are they improper towards our headship today? Uh, Would we be in danger of dishonoring the headship or over-realizing the eschatology and the headship based upon our culture today? in different places as cultures. Right. And I think even one of the main things right? in, in, is what Paul says, I became to all people, all things, so I might win some. If I went a, a, into the Middle East and told my wife she does not have to wear a head covering, she, 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 she needs to stand up and say, no, that's not right. God says I'm okay. I don't have to do that. Well, she may get her head cut off. I don't know what they would do in some of the Islamic countries, but that's a different culture. And so as we look at eschatologically, as culture changes, we're able to adjust to that culture so that we can bring Christ to that culture. Over-realize eschatology in that sense wouldn't mean you're looking at something at the end, but as much as what is right now and what would benefit the gospel most. In other words, you would be claiming, uh, like Paul did, uh, like Paul was saying in, in Romans, I should be able to eat whatever I want to eat. But I won't, because meat causes some people to stumble. So in that sense, that's an over-realized eschatology in the sense that the culture is in a different place than you are. We're all going to come to a point, I think, when everybody could eat anything, or we're all going to come to a point where uh, maybe where in certain cultures where you don't need a head covering doesn't make any difference, but there's still cultures that do. So that's sort of a modified uh, over-realized eschatology. Usually over-realized eschatology is talking about claiming something that is at the end, uh, which in a sense this is because it's claiming I have freedom to do whatever I want. And uh, you don't have that yet. And uh, it depends on what your motives are before you would do that. It, it seems it would do us all good to, in America, to go our United States to go on a one-year challenge to a, a foreign mission field and see how to plant the gospel in that culture and discover yes. we can't do whatever we want <laughs> or the way we do it. Thank you for referencing the becoming all things to all men. And uh, I think that is a good way of going about it. Certainly in Ephesians 5, we, we center in on how that applies to marriage. But what do you see in 1 Corinthians 11 that would indicate this is for, for all women and not just a marriage? Well, there, there's two things. One is... Uh... I think I make reference in my paper is that uh, most of the scholars and most of the translations, if you look at the translations, there are a few of them that translate husband, wife here, but most of them leave it as a general Mm -hmm. man, women aspect. Thistleton in his commentary, uh, he's got a great big commentary here on first Corinthians uh, as well as the both feel like that, this is uh, talking about gender roles more than just specifically male-female. And he states this. He says, a few commentators defend husband here, but overwhelming majority of writers convincingly, according to Thistleton, convincingly argue that the issue concerns gender relations as a whole, not simply with those within the restricted family circle. And so, and and then secondly, that's the first thing. I'm just taking for granted that these guys have done their homework and they're really actually, this is true, which I've seen at least in the translations. Secondly, if you look at uh, chapter 11, and then you look, you look a little bit, you've already, he's already talked about idols and 
Lord's Supper, he's talking about prophesying and praying. And that seems to be in, in the assembly. And so contextually, you could still have it as men and their wives, but I don't think it necessarily has to be limited to that. He goes on, he talks about the Lord's Supper. He talks about spiritual gifts in chapter 12. Chapter 13 is a love chapter. Then chapter 14, he talks about all these different spiritual gifts that are going on. And he doesn't seem to be distinguishing uh, husband-wife type things. He, he, he doesn't even distinguish gender that much there, although he does in the last part of it for sure. But I, so I get, I get the feel from, from the context that he's not talking about marriage relationships as much as the demeanor in the worship assembly. And so that's one of the reasons, what, that's another reason why I would feel like, feel better about translating this man uh, and woman rather than husband and wife. It seems like it's not necessarily um, yeah. consistent with the rest of what he's talking about in, in there. And just to clarify, in, cl- in case anyone gets lost, if, uh, if you're of the opinion that that headship is a permanent aspect of this current age, and now people hear us begin to talk about how culture can change an expression of that. Yeah, I think um, how you, you hit the that but hit the nail on the head when you said the expression of that. And I think it has to do with mm-hmm. lots of it has to do with the honor shame right. aspect of how how it's viewed in the culture, how it's viewed in your own church culture, for that matter. Um, uh, that's why I think Paul said, uh, you know, as in all the churches of the saints, we have no other no other practice. Uh, I don't think he's saying it couldn't change, but he's saying that's what it is now. And if you're going to be with us in this, we want you to 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 not show dishonor to your to your head, whatever way that might be done. I appreciate, as you just said, uh, our practice in all the churches of God, and you reference in your paper, hey, this should be discussed in community, in concert with the other churches of God. Um, how would we go about that practically? And 1 Corinthians 11 does talk about the assembly, but how can we be in concert with other disciples? Well, I think we have to, first of all, be aware of you know, their situation and how, and encourage them to be aware with our situation so that we can understand each other where we're at. It, it doesn't mean that we have to have uniformity but I think we need to have unity in how we're thinking or approaching this. Otherwise, you'd go to the Middle East and so you would have to have women wear coverings or water and other things. Uh, maybe they couldn't even go to school. And yet, if they came over here and, and, and we forced them to do something that we do, that might not work consciously for them either. So I think I think it's important to, to do like what, Paul talked about eating meat or not eating meat. Uh, Paul, even when he went down to Jerusalem, he started doing some of the Jewish practices, went into the temple and stuff like that. So I think there's there's enough in there to show that we're free, but we're not free to cause people to stumble. We're not free to cause people to 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 fall away from God, or not free to cause them uh, disruption in their faith. Their faith may need to grow. Yeah, ours does too. I think it's that's part of the benevolent application, if you will, of this idea of headship here that Paul's talking about is that we consider everybody and we try to do the best that's for everybody and not, uh, if you will, ramrod our authority through what we think should be done. But we take in consideration uh, what's happening and how we can work together to give a unified witness to the world. All of that is so important for application of the eschatological perspective, culture in concert with the other churches. And I think at 1 Corinthians 4, 6, we, we don't want to add to the, the word of God or this New Testament age. <laughs> is there anything else you would say for application? Make sure that we don't, that we don't add to the commands of the Lord when we... I think it's imperative that we do our best to find out what things in the scripture are permanent in this age and what are cultural. That's a, not an easy task. Mm-hmm. But I think I think that's so important. Mm. Otherwise, we won't have any foundation on which to judge if something's overrealized or underrealized. We, we've, we've got 
we've got to be able to find out what did God consider in this age as permanent and yet transformed, and what has all these cultural or other type of uh, leeways with it that uh, wouldn't be considered permanent. So that's a that's a that's a big task, and scholars disagree on that. So I don't think we're going to be perfect in it. I think that's where we maximize in, in the grace of God toward one another. And we try to practice grace toward one another and understanding where they're coming from and they understanding where we're at. And still, you can agree to disagree certain things. I think that's part of the eschatological age we're in too, is that we're in an age of grace. Grace. That is a good place to, to end the discussion <laughs> and a starting place for future discussions. Glenn, thanks so much again for your time and for you holding the Bible as your standard. Would I be able to give you some book ideas on reading about the general, the gender issue? I know you've probably seen, uh, this might be backwards, I don't know if it's on there, but it's Bible and Gender. If you want to do some research, look at the, read this, but also look at the uh, bibliography at the end for a very conservative perspective in the sense that a strong headship uh perspective in the sense of, uh, I would say, the hardest. I'm more of a soft complementarian. This is a hardest complementarian would be Discovering Biblical Manhood and Womanhood by John Piper and Wayne Grudem. A more complementarian perspective, and these are big books you can see, is Discovering Biblical Equality, Complementarity Without Hierarchy by uh, uh, Gordon Fee and Pearson Grudhaus. Another interesting book, if I might say, since maybe maybe the people that are watching this today are from the Restoration Movement, is to read a book by John Mark Hicks called Women Serving God, a journey and understand my journey and understanding their story in the Bible. I don't necessarily agree with whatever he said, but what's important in that book is to look at our heritage and find out well what was their stance on women in the church way back in the 1800s, how did that progress to where, at least in the churches of Christ, uh, that progressed today? And you can see where it goes. But I think that was very enlightening for our elders in, in our church here and other people in our church. Uh, but that doesn't mean you accept all that all he says necessarily, but at least uh, it gives you some enlightenment of, wow, this has changed. It hasn't always been this way. Where are we going now? Gives you a good perspective, I think. I've certainly heard that that packs a lot of value to show where we've come from. So I, that's on my list. Th thank you so much for recommending those resources. And uh, I'll certainly be pointing people towards your papers so they can dig into these scriptures more. Thank you so much. For You're your welcome. Writing thank you for your the interview. Glenn. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. It would mean so much to us if you were to leave us a review and a rating for our podcast so that this message can reach others. Thank you.